Good morning. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of 2 Corinthians. See if this will boost my volume a little bit. Last week we studied the book of 1 Corinthians as we were continuing in this series of going through the book of Acts and addressing uh, the different letters that were written to the church during that time period, which comprises more or less the rest of the New Testament. After the book of Acts, you have these epistles, the letters that the apostles were writing to the churches that they were visiting, that they were serving. And we notice the, the first uh, letter to the Corinthian, Corinthian church was largely a letter of admonition. There were issues in that church that needed correcting. And Paul, in his care for that church, was addressing these different issues. He was admonishing them. He wanted to see an improvement in their spiritual growth, in their Christian life. This letter follows that other letter uh, shortly. I don't think there were more than a few months in between. And uh, whereas the first letter was written after a delegation came from Corinth to Paul and informed him as to how things were going, this one was actually written after a man named Titus came to Paul. Titus was one of the disciples or, or co-workers of Paul that Paul was using in ministering to others, and he sent him ahead, he sent Titus ahead of him to Corinth to see how they were doing to help them to minister to them. And now Titus has returned, and he brings a report of how his service to the Corinthians went. And that report results in the writing of this epistle. So in a sense, it's a response to a response. It's a response to the response of the Corinthians to the first letter that Paul wrote to them. Now we will see in this letter that the response was mixed. There were some good things and perhaps some bad things. And most of the bad things relate to a new problem that wasn't addressed in the first letter, perhaps because Paul didn't realize how big that problem was becoming. And that problem is found, actually, in the book of Matthew. If you would, turn to Matthew and chapter 7. I'm sorry for misleading you and first having you turn to 2 Corinthians. There's just one verse that comes to mind. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 15. Jesus is telling this to his uh, disciples and to the crowd that's listening to him. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. And there were such false prophets in the church at Corinth. And they were sheep's clothing. They looked like they were Christians. They behaved like they were uh, Christians perhaps in some ways and uh, really they, they were taking upon themselves the roles of prophets or teachers. They claimed to be instructing the Corinthians in the proper things and these proper things were against the things that Paul was teaching them to do. And so Paul is getting as he's calling the Corinthians to change the way they were living he's running into an issue that these people these false prophets in the Corinthian church were opposing him and teaching things that they ought not to be teaching. And so we'll see as Paul responds to the Corinthians, 
in, 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 uh, inevitably he will start talking about, about uh, these false prophets and really he is responding to an attack made against him that he is not teaching the Corinthians the right way. He'll really have to defend himself, not for his own good, but for the good of the Corinthians. Okay, with that, uh, go ahead and turn back to 2 Corinthians. first section we have is really to encourage the Corinthians. We see in, in chapter 1 and verse 7, Paul says this to the Corinthians, And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will, be, you will partake of the consolation. And Paul himself was suffering at this time, and God was consoling him. He was comforting Paul in special ways. And Paul, part of the report brought from Titus, tells him that there are some sufferings going in the church of Corinth. And Paul wants to encourage them over it and saying, look, as God is allowing you to experience this suffering, he's also going to bring this comforting. God is a comforting God. He's going to come and comfort you. He's, he's encouraging them with that. The second verse I'd like you to look at is also in chapter 1, verse 23. Paul is saying this, Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. Paul is addressing here one of the issues uh, he, he Titus ran into in Corinth, and that is some people were upset with Paul for not coming directly to Corinth from Ephesus. If you look at your map, Corinth and Ephesus are on opposing side of the Aegean Sea. Paul could have technically taken a boat, a relatively short ride, to Corinth when he when he comes to visit them. In case, instead, he's taking a very long route. He's going all the way up the coast of the Aegean Sea uh, through Asia Minor. And he goes to Macedonia. And only from Macedonia, he's now going to come to the Corinthians. And some people at the Corinth were upset. Hey, Paul, don't you love us? Why aren't you coming to us more quickly? Why are you taking the long way around? And Paul is saying this to them. He's saying, again, verse 23, Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. What he's saying there is, if I had to come, if I came straight to you, straight to the Corinthians from Ephesus, I would not have been able to spare you. I would have had to discipline you because of the issues that were going under. There were, there were things that they were doing that were not right. And Paul wants, wanted them to change that way. And if he came to Corinth, he would have had to deal with these issues, perhaps in a way that would not have been very pleasant to the Corinthians. He would have had to discipline them. I know what it's like because I have a three-year-old daughter, and one coming up right behind her, she's one-year-old, and sometimes they're doing things that they ought not to do, and I have to discipline them. And it's a task that I don't enjoy, and I try to avoid as much as possible, which is not always a good thing, because for their good, I have to be there and discipline them when they're doing things they ought not to be doing. And sometimes the way around them is to give them a little bit of extra time. If I go to my daughter's room and I tell her, clean up this mess, and uh, I walk out of the room and I walk by the room about a minute or two later and I see she still hasn't cleaned up, if I go into that room again, I'm going to have to discipline her for it. So instead I go to my office and I check my email, hoping that in the meantime maybe she'll clean it up. Because when I go in there, she, she's going to be taken to task over whether she followed what I told her to do. And in a sense, Paul is doing this. He's buying the Corinthians a little more time 
by instead of going directly to them, he's going the long way around. He's really doing it because he loves them, not because he doesn't love them. And that's what he says there. Uh, the next verse I'd like you to look at is in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Paul is saying this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. As you were reading, uh, as, as we reviewed the First Corinthians, we came across a man that was practicing uh, sexual immorality in the church, and that wasn't being dealt with. They were just allowing it to go on. And Paul says, look, this is wrong. This is going to corrupt the rest of the church. It has to be put away. It has to stop. Put this person out of fellowship until he gets his act together. You can't allow the sin to continue to go in the church. And it may have seemed kind of harsh. You know, Paul from far away is putting this man out of fellowship and you, you might say, well, you know, here's the Corinthians, they're loving this guy and, you know, maybe they're hoping he'll change. And Paul comes and he's cold-hearted and he's just putting him out of fellowship. Well, this passage really shows that this person has been on the heart of Paul all this time. Paul didn't do it because he didn't care for this person. He did it because he cared for this person. He wanted to see the change. There had to have been a change in this person's life for his good. And that's why Paul is, is having this person put out of fellowship. Yes, it's for the good of the whole church. It's also for the good of this person. And this person has been on the heart of Paul for months. And now he hears a report from Titus that this person has repented, but he's still out of fellowship with the church because they took seriously what Paul said and they put him out of fellowship. And now Paul is saying, look, restore this person to fellowship. He's repented. It's been accomplished. Now, now receive him back. He's saying, lest, uh, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. He doesn't want this person, after, after making a step in the right direction, repenting, to slide into sorrow, into a state that God doesn't want this person to be in. It's good. This person has repented. He should be brought back into fellowship. That's Paul's, Paul's desire for him. It was for his good. It was for the church good that he was admonishing the Corinthians. Now we'll turn to the last verse in the second chapter, verse 17. It says, For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God we speak in the sight of God in Christ. This is where the epistle transitions, and Paul is beginning to deal with, with the fact that he's being accused as being a, a false apostle, or, or not a real teacher from God, or his doctrines are being attacked. His position and his doctrines are being attacked by these people who, perhaps the best title from them will be Judaizers. They, they appear a few times in the New Testament. They're called Judaizers because they're trying to get these Gentiles converts that have now embraced uh, the gospel, embraced Christianity. They're trying to get them to say, no, that's not really the right way. The right way is through the law of Moses. They're trying to, in a sense, throw them back into a form of Judaism that was basically just putting the law of God up on, a, uh, up on the, the altar and, and, in a sense, worshipping the law of God, just, just looking at that as the way to please God. They were trying to please God by keeping the law. Now, it's not that we don't please God when we keep the law, but we don't come to God through the law. The law was given to us, as we'll see here later on, to convict us of our sins. And we really, we come to God through Christ, through Jesus and the work he did for us on the cross. 
So these were called Judaizers because in a sense they were dragging these Gentiles back into the Jewish religion or into that form of the Jewish religion. Okay, and they were attacking Paul. And we'll see Paul responding in the next three chapters and to some extent for the rest of this epistle to this accusation that he's peddling the word of God. To peddle the word of God, actually the best, the best Greek translation of this word is retail. He is retailing the word of God. They're, they're accusing him of selling it, basically doing it for his own profit. They're saying Paul is just trying to get money out of you guys. Paul is just trying to get something out of you guys. That's why he's doing it. And Paul will really be fighting this image throughout this epistle that no, he's really, truly, genuinely serving God in what he's doing. And we'll see, we'll see these statements in the next chapters. So the first one is the very beginning of chapter 3. And again, this is all in defense of Paul's, the fact that Paul is really serving God in what he's doing. He is a real servant of God. Chapter 3, verse 1. Do we again begin to commend ourselves, or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you, or letters of commendations from you? You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. You are manifestly an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. So again, they're looking for evidence of Paul being uh, a true servant of God, a true apostle, if you would. And Paul is referring to this um, a system of recommendation that they had in, in that day. And to some extent, it's still around today. I don't know how Tom decides which speaker to, to get to speak at the Yosemite conference, but probably through some sort of recommendation. Someone will tell Tom, you know, this, this person's a good speaker. He really has a heart for the people of God. And Paul might check, uh, Tom might check a couple of references and then say, okay, and he'll sign this person up to come and speak in the Yosemite conference. Well, they probably had a system similar at the time where if somebody uh, came to speak, he would have some letter of commendation, perhaps, from a church that he's been ministering out at, saying, yes, this person really cares for the saints and he really preaches the word of God. You should let him speak. If you remember, we saw that, we saw that in the book of Acts with Apollos. Apollos was so, first ministering in Ephesus, and the saints from Ephesus wrote to the saints in Corinth and saying, you should let him come and speak. He's really going to help you. And he did. He really helped the church at Corinth with his ministry. So Paul is referring to that and he's saying, you know, do we need something like that? And then he turns it around to the Corinthians and saying, you are our letter of commendation. And what he's referring to is, they're the evidence. If you're looking for an evidence that Paul is, a real, uh, is really doing God's work, well, you look at the Corinthians. The Corinthians have been changed. They were part of this dissolute city of sin. And Paul went in among them and preached the gospel. And they changed. People's lives changed. There was a form, the church that granted had some problems in it, but we're still a church of God with people completely uh, uh, living a different life than the life that they were living before. They were the evidence that Paul was a real servant of God. And it's interesting here, there's, there's all kinds of irony in this epistle, and, and one of them is the fact that they are the evidence that they're looking for. There's another one, uh, if you read between the lines in verse 3, Paul says that there are letter that is this letter of recommendation written uh, of the work of Paul, written by the Spirit of God, 
of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the flesh, that is, of the heart. I don't know if you remember, but what in the scripture was written on tablets of stone? Ten Commandments, that's right, the law. And that's exactly what the Judaizers was, were putting forward. Look, you know, God wrote you know, on stone, you know, he, 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 with his finger, he etched on a stone the commandments. That's how important they are. And yet for all of that, that law was useless in changing the lives of people. These Judaizers and, and, uh, and all their work has resulted in no holiness being brought to the city of Corinth. And yet when Paul came, God, through the Holy Spirit, changed the hearts of the Corinthian believers. And now you see real holiness. And so, really, the evidence was in Paul's favor that he was doing the work of God and against these Judaizers who really had no power to change the lives of people. Paul had that power because he was really serving God. The Spirit of God was working through Paul is what he's showing him. Let's look at verse 12. And again, this is all to answer this accusation that Paul has been peddling the Word of God, that he's been doing it for his own profit. And he says this, Verse 12, therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. And Paul is telling us here why it is that he's going out and preaching and, and, and sharing with people the word of God. And he's saying it's because of this great hope. And it's really, it's the same hope that Paul refers to in uh, the book of uh, Romans when he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. Do I have something wrong with my system? Sorry, we're having technical difficulties. We'll be back in one moment. Okay, Paul says in Romans, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. And it's because of the power of the gospel of changing lives that Paul is not ashamed. And in this case, Paul, he says he's bold in his speech because he knows the message that he has changes people's lives. And, and really, we, we talked here about the, the evidence we see in people's lives become, going from unholy to becoming holy. And Paul really sees the whole of it. And Jesus said, that they're being transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, from, from the state of condemnation to the state of justification. Paul knows that he's making an eternal difference in the lives of these people. And because of that, he is bold. So he's being accused of doing it for his own profit, and he's saying, no, I'm doing it for your profit. All the preaching, all the ministering I'm doing is I'm doing for your profit. And as I'm going through this list, it occurs to me, it's good for us to be thinking of of these things in our lives. So we want to be serving God with our lives. Are we seeing this? Do we have these same things that characterize Paul and that show that Paul himself is not peddling the word of God? And one thing we talked about is evidence. Paul had evidence in his life. And we like to see evidence that our service to God is resulting in the work of God. We want to see that. It's a good sign. If it's lacking, we want to be searching ourselves. Is there a reason why I'm not fruitful in serving God. And it doesn't have to be by people being saved. There's many other ways God can work through us, but it's good to see evidence that God is working through us. Another one is this, is what is your motivation? Is it self-oriented or is it others-oriented? And in this case, Paul is clearly saying it's others-oriented. 
I'm looking for the good that comes to you, that comes to people from the message that I am preaching. That's why I'm doing it. Okay, let's look at the third item. And there's actually really a lot of things that Paul brings up in these chapters. And because of time, I have to skip over some of them. But uh, you get, have the advantage. You can go home and you can read through these chapters and glean all these other uh, evidences or reasons of why Paul is not peddling the word of God. He really is a servant of God. If you want to look at, at uh, chapter 4, we'll start at verse 16. Paul says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For a light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding an eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. One of the things that really weakens our testimony a lot of time is our lives. It's when our mouth says something, but our lives show something else. And what Paul is pointing out here is that his life shows what he is preaching. And we skipped a, a, a big section here that's referred to in verse 17. Paul calls it our light affliction. Paul, what the reward Paul got for preaching the gospel is persecution. Everywhere Paul goes and preaches the gospel, it didn't take very long before he starts getting attacked. And, uh, and he suffered quite a bit serving the Lord Jesus and serving them by, by ministering to them. And so you think about trying to think of Paul as a peddler, someone who's doing it for his profit, and it just doesn't fit because he's suffering. Why, why will someone be doing something for himself when all he's getting out of it is suffering? It doesn't fit. It shows that Paul was really serving others, that he was really serving God, the fact that, that he continued to do it. And he, he, he has the reason here. He says in verse 18, well, we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul wasn't grieving the suffering because his mind was on the things that he was accomplishing for God. But it show, what it shows is, is Paul really believed what he preached. He was preaching to people about uh, forsaking the things of the world and, and, and going after the things of God, about uh, repenting of the sin and accepting uh, the righteousness that God was giving them through Christ. And, and Paul, by his life, showed that he believed these things because he didn't care about the here and now. He cared about the then and there. And that added power to his ministry, and it showed that he was a real servant of God. He wasn't, he wasn't, a, he wasn't peddling the word of God as they were accusing him of. Finally, in chapter 5 and verses 14 and 15, Paul says this, For the love of Christ constrains us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. And uh, Paul, again, is answering the question of accusation of being peddling, and says, no, I'm doing these things for the love of Christ. The love of Christ constrains me. It's that which moves me. I'm doing these things because that's what Jesus wants me to do. And you might ask, well, wait a second. Before you were saying that he was doing it for their good, now you're saying he's doing it because that's what Christ wants him to do. Which one is it? Well, the answer is yes. 
when, when you want to do what Christ wants you to do, he gives you a heart for others too. And so he really cared for them because of the love that he had for Christ. And it's the love of Jesus working through him that's really reaching these people. And we really see it through his apostles. You really see his heart of love for the saints because of the love that Jesus gave to him. Paul, on his own, hated Christians. He persecuted them to death. But when he became converted, God gave him such a heart of love for them that now he cares about them so much he's willing to die for them himself. That's the change that, that, that God put in his life. And that's what we want to see in our life. When we're serving God, we should be doing it for him. He gives us the love for others as we're serving others also. Okay, so with that, uh, we're reaching a new section here, really, in chapter 6. And it really shows that Paul is not, he's not arguing it because he wants them to believe that he is from God. I mean, he doesn't, Paul doesn't care what they think about him. He cares about their own good. And yet, it's their own good that's, that's at risk here. In chapter 6, starting at verse 1. We then, as workers, together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And uh, Paul is concerned for these Corinthians, and this is really one of the works of these people who were called Judaizers, is they kept people away from the grace of Christ, and they said, well, you know, what... You know, who Jesus is and what Jesus did is all fine and good, but this is what's really important is the law. If you really want to be saved, you need to keep the law of Moses and be circumcised and all these other things you're going to have to start doing. And if they start doing it, that's what Paul told the Galatians, everything Christ did for them becomes useless because they're no longer trusting in what Jesus did for them. They're now beginning to trust in the law, in their own works. And because of that, the, the setting, uh, the words that Paul uses here, is receiving the grace of God in vain. They're really not receiving it. They're not getting the advantage of what Christ did for them. And that's really why Paul is, is, is defending himself uh, against these attacks, is because he wants them to receive Christ. He doesn't want them to listen to what his Judaizers are telling them. He wants them to listen to him and what he has to tell them. Because what he tells them is concerns their salvation. They have to listen to him. It's crucial. Our next verse is in, in uh, chapter 5, verse 11. O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affection. Now in return for the same, I speak as to children, or as to my children, you also be open. The language here can be sometimes difficult, but what Paul is saying is expressing how much he loves the Corinthians. When he says, he says, our heart is wide open. It's a, it's a figure of speech trying to describe just how much he loves them, how deeply he loves them. And then he turns to them and he says to them, you are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. What he's saying is the Corinthians are not loving him the same. They're not loving him as much as he loves them. Then he appeals to them, now in return for the same, I speak as to my children, you also be open. That is, you love me the same way that I love you. That's what I want from you guys. And there's a reason he wants it. Again, it's not, it's not seeking for his own that, that he's doing it. He's really doing it for their own good. Let me explain this 
by turning briefly to the Gospel of John. In chapter 15, John 15, in verses 9 and 10, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. Jesus describes here the love that he wants his disciples to have to him. He wants them to abide in his love. He loves them, and he wants them to abide in his love, to love him back. And the way that happens is by them keeping his commandments. Now, it's similar. There's a similar relationship. First of all, he gives the example of himself, of Jesus with the Father. He says, just as my Father loves me and I abide in his love, I keep his commandments. Jesus' way of showing love to the Father of keeping that loving relationship was by obeying his father, doing what his father wanted him to do. Paul is calling for the Corinthians to do the same thing. I want you to love me because if they love him, they will also keep his commandments. That's, that's the way the relationship is supposed to be. With our, we talk a lot about our relationship with our children. We're, we're taking a growing kids uh, God's way class, as I've repeated here many times. And uh, really the ultimate desire is for your children to obey you out of love. And that's really the goal that you're shooting for. And that's, and that's what Paul wants. Paul wants the Corinthians to respond to him in love, and that means believe what he says and do the things that he's asking them to do. That's, that's, that's his concern for them. That's the love that he wants them to love them with, and it reflects the love that he has for them. And it was interesting for me as I was uh, thinking about this, that this is the way God helps people serve other people. And the first example is that with children. God gives us children, and we are to raise our children to know God, to care for them. God loves our children, yet he committed them for our care. It's our job to care for them. And if you know uh, how children can be sometimes, they can be very unlovable. And yet, at the same time, we never lack in love for them. Even when my daughter is doing something that, that makes me angry, and she knows it's making me angry, and she's doing it all the more, I don't stop loving her. Why? Because God gave me a special love for her. And I need it, or I'm not going to be able to do the job God wants me to do, which is to, to care for her and to teach her and to help her grow. God needs to give me that love. Well, interesting that God does the same thing in the spiritual realm. If God expects you to minister to somebody else spiritually, God will give you a special love for that person. And the, the first time I learned it was actually when I was meeting with Rick. And uh, he told me once, maybe probably more than once, he told me that he loved me. And uh, I said, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and the, reason, uh, the, the, the right response might have been, you know, I love you too. But I recognize I did not have the same love that he had. Because God placed a special love in his heart for me because he needed it to work with me. He needed to have a special love. And I noticed God doing the same for me when, when I was involved in, in, in uh, other people's lives and working with them. Uh, God gave me a special love for them. I remember one of them once, 
turning to me uh, and, and saying, why do you always smile at me? Every time I'm looking at you, you're smiling at me. And the reason was because of the love that God has put in my heart. I couldn't look at that person's face without smiling. And, uh, and that's what God has done with Paul here. And what Paul is trying to communicate to the Corinthians was how much he loved them. And he was just asking, please respond with the same love. And responding in the same love is really being as children, obeying their parents because they love their parents. That's what he wants. He just wants this loving relationship that ought to be there. And if we skip down to verse 17, Paul says, Therefore come out from among them, therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean. I will be, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And this comes at the end of, of, of some more admonition from Paul from them to separate from things that were keeping them back from God. And yet you see the only reason that God wants them to do it, he says that, is so that he can be a father to them and they can be his sons and his daughters. The one thing that keeps us from the loving relationship that God wants to have with us is our sin. When we're holding on to sin in our life, it gets in the way of that relationship God wants to have with us. And he just wants us to let it go and just be with him because as we were worshiping God for this morning, his desire for that is that of a loving father. He wants to have the relationship of a father with his own children. And that's the same desire that Paul had because that was the heart of God that was put in Paul's heart toward them, is the desire of a parent toward his children, of just loving them. And them loving him back, as a loving parent, all you try to do is tell your children to do the things that are best for them. And if you love your father, you will do them, and you will have the very best for you. Because that's, that's the way God made things to work between father and children. The, the parents guide, the children follow out of love, and the result is... They, they have the very best for them. Everybody has the very best for them. In chapter 7, might be, uh, in a sense, the good news of this book, Paul goes back to what he started talking about. Titus came back, and Titus brought some good news. Not all the news Titus had were bad. Some good news, some of the news were good. Uh, let's see. We'll pick in verse 6, pick up in verse 6. Nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice even more. So Titus had some good news for Paul. They, they received his letter, and overall the response was good. Okay, It may not include everybody, but the majority of the people responded well to the majority of the issues that he was brought up. And as an example, we have again the issue of the, of, of the immorality that was in the church that had to be put away. Go ahead and look down at verse 11. Uh, take, a, take a break before I look there. So Paul was admonishing the Corinthians, and generally speaking, there's three possible responses ways you can respond. If somebody is, is admonishing you for some sin of your life, rebuking you, trying to fix a problem in your life, there's generally speaking, there's three possible responses. One is you can reject what they're saying and say, Paul, I don't agree with you. You know, I don't recognize that this is a sin or I don't recognize that what I'm doing is wrong and I'm not going to stop doing it. That was a possible response to Paul's admonition. The second type of response 
is, uh, you could really call it a halfway response. It is, oh yeah, you know, I think you have a point pull, and uh, right, I'm, I'm going to work on it, going to try to fix it. And you might make a gesture of two in the right direction, but there isn't a real change in your life. It wasn't really full repentance. Remember, Paul is talking about sin in their life. And, and so they can reject it, or they can you know, kind of agree with it. Oh, yes, I think there's something there, and I'll, I'll try to fix it. But there's no change in their life. There's evidence that there wasn't full repentance. And it, it would be, to some extent, just as disconcerting to Paul. But that's not what their response was. That's what verse 11 is all about. Paul is pointing to, the, pointing to the response and he's showing what was it about the response that encouraged him. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this manner. They fully responded to Paul. They, they agreed with Paul completely about their sin and they dealt with it just the way Paul said to, they put that person out of fellowship. There was uh, a, a zealous repentance. And that's really what God wants to see in our life. When somebody points out to sin in our life, he doesn't want this kind of a whole hum response. Oh, yeah, I see what you're saying. I'm going to work on it. God really wants this turning around. Oh, there's sin in my life. And when you recognize the sin and you see it for what it is, God wants you to take it and throw it as far from you as you can. He wants to see that real response, real repentance from sin. That's sorrowing in a godly so, so Paul is so. So Paul had this uh, uh, was encouraged by their response, and in chapter eight, uh, Paul picks up on a uh, again kind of on a new item. It was actually mentioned in First Corinthians very briefly, so briefly that I didn't stop to look at it last week. But there's another issue in the Corinthian uh, church. The Corinthian church. And other churches in the area all agreed together to send a financial, financial support for the poor saints in Jerusalem. There were some saints in Jerusalem that were su- suffering from real lack of food, clothing, shelter. And when, when the churches in, in Achaia and Macedonia ha- heard about it, they wanted to do something. Their heart was still. They're like, we're going to support them. We're going to send them some money to help them out. That was a good thing. The problem was, the Corinthians had a real difficulty letting go of their money. Okay, they were still kind of holding on to it. They talked about it, but they haven't really done it. And, and this was a problem because Paul was now in his circuit to Macedonia and Achaia was, was really collecting what the saints have saved over the last year or so, and he was going to take it with him or send it to somebody else to Jerusalem. And it's a problem if he's now going to get to Corinth and he's like, great, well, can I have the money you've collected? And like people start looking at each other, so you know they haven't collected any, and that's a problem. So Paul is really trying to correct this issue with this letter. He doesn't want to have to deal with that when he gets to Corinth. He really wants them to have fixed the situation by then and gather whatever it is they desire to give. I mean, Paul wasn't going to force them or didn't ask them to give more than they, they desire to. He says very clearly, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. You know, I'm not here to take from you something you're not willing to give, but if you're really willing to give, do it. Okay. And he encourages them in four ways here. We'll, we'll touch on them very briefly. The first way he encourages them to give is with the giving of others. Chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, 
the abundance of their joy and the deep, the deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. So what he's saying is they, the Macedonians, which are the other group of churches that with them wants to send the support for Jerusalem, they have gathered. I mean, even though they, they were poverty-stricken, generally speaking, the region of Macedonia was a lot poorer than the region of Acacia, Achaia. I think perhaps, you know, the difference between the heather lands, the United States, and a place like California or the Bay Area, generally speaking, people here have a lot more money than someone in the Midwest because the salaries here tend to be much higher. Job tends to be abundant. Yes, the standard of living is more expensive too. I realize that. But generally speaking, we have a lot more money than people back there would. And yet for all of that, the people in Macedonia gave a lot of money, contributed a lot of money toward this gift that was going to Jerusalem. And Paul is here encouraging the Corinthians, and it's encouraging to us when other people participate in the work and they're doing well. I think recently an encouragement we have, one of the big projects we have here, for those of you who may not be aware of it, is we'd like to expand this building to provide more space for you guys to be sitting in. You don't have to be so close to me when I'm speaking. Oh, there'll be room for more people and just more ways we can use this building. And expanding this building isn't likely to be very cheap. It's likely to, to have a certain uh, bill attached with it, which can be intimidating. And uh, we have opportunities to give toward that. And it was really encouraging to me when a few weeks ago it was announced that Fairhaven sent a very sizable check to help toward the building of this building. Just knowing that there's other people out there collaborating with you and their giving of what they have to help with this work, it's encouraging for me toward my giving for this work. It shows that the Lord is doing something great here and I have an opportunity to participate in it. The next encouragement is in uh, verse 9 of this chapter. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. It's such an understatement when you, you talk about the Lord Jesus being rich and becoming poor. You think about him seated in heaven, worshipped by the angels, and becoming a man, and going up on the cross and being crucified for your sins and my sins. And he says, for your sakes. The Lord Jesus, he, he was rich and he became poor for your sakes. And you think about that, I don't know about your heart, but my heart will overflow in thanks for what the Lord did for me. And, and the way we show thanks to the Lord is by giving to others, right? Didn't he say this? He says, when you give uh, a cold cup of water to one of these little ones in my name, it's as if you've done it unto me. I mean, that's what the Lord says. When you're ministering, when they were ministering to the saints in Jerusalem, they were ministering unto Christ. It was a real way of showing thanks and appreciation to the Lord for what he did for us. Next encouragement he gives them is in chapter 9, verse 6. As, I'm sorry, uh, but, but this I say, Paul is speaking, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. It's taken from an, from an example in the world of agriculture. And uh, there, every, every year you, you collect a harvest. You get all this good stuff. You get all this grain that you collected from the field. And you have to set some of it. If you're not going to give some of it back, in a sense, to the ground, you're going to be sowing it back in, you're going to have nothing for next year. And similarly, God gave us an abundance of all kinds of good things. It's not just talking about money, but money is included. If we don't give back to the Lord of what he's given to us, 
We can't expect the Lord to give us anything. If everything the Lord gave us, we're keeping for myself, and I'm going to in some way selfishly spend on myself, why will the Lord give me anything else? This is the way Jesus said it. He says, if you're not faithful with unrighteous mammon, who will give you true riches? God gave us money, which is not very valuable in his sight, and if we're not using that money for God, why will he give us something that has true value for God? Because if we're not faithful with the unrighteous mammon money, are we going to be faithful with even greater things God wants to give us? We have to be faithful in the little things before we get the, the greater things that we can then be faithful in those things. So, so it's really for their own good to be giving this. It's really it's going to be a blessing to them. They'll be blessed by giving. And that's what he's reminding them. Finally, we have in uh, chapter 9, verse 12 and 13, for the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. While through the proof of this ministry they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men. And what uh, Paul points out to is that when they're doing this for the saints in Jerusalem, it really results in glory, uh, in glory to God and thanksgiving for God. And, and it encourages me. Sometimes uh, work that I do, it's not immediately obvious how I'm actually serving the Lord or how God is glorified by it. And it can be discouraging if I don't recognize that what I'm doing is, is results in God's, God getting the glory, God being thankful, God being praiseful. I may have less of a reason to do it. And Paul is just pointing to them exactly how God will be praised and God will be glorified and God will be thanked for what they are doing. What I, what I am doing can actually result in glory being given to God, thanks and praises to God. Well, that's a good reason to do it. <laughs> and uh, Paul's encouraging them in that. In chapter 10, Paul is returning to this issue of uh, being accused of not being a real servant of God. And he gives a reason for it. In verse, we're actually going to skip a little bit ahead to, to uh, chapter 11, and we'll look at verse 3, because that's really the key thought behind this section that's going to be stretching from uh, chapter 10 to halfway through chapter 12. So chapter 11, verse 3, Paul says this, But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve, by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. So I mentioned how there's, there's false prophets in the Corinthian church, and they're teaching the people wrong things. And the reason Paul is referring here to, uh, is referring to uh, the serpent deceiving Eve is because it's from the same source. It's coming from Satan. Just like as the serpent was going through the garden, and deceived Eve and caused Eve to sin against God and resulted in all the loss that, that happened to her and Adam and, and to the rest of mankind by, by betraying, turning against God. In the same way, these people are in the church in Corinth and they're feeding the people lies about God and they're turning them away from the simplicity that in, is in Christ. And it's important to Paul that, they're going to, that they stay true to God. Their blessing still rests in their faithfulness to God, listening to what God has to tell them, and obeying God. And they're being deceived by these other people into disobeying God and not accepting the good things God has for them is really resulting in great harm being done for them. The same, 
The same way that Satan was attacking even and Adam, in a similar way, these people are now attacking. You know, these people themselves are being fooled by Satan. They may not be doing it deliberately, but they're accomplishing Satan's goal in creating separation between the Corinthians and between God. And that's what's on Paul's heart as he, during this next section. As Paul is, in a sense, defending himself, defending his authority to tell them the things of God, he's really trying to protect them from this attack that's coming from this from outside, he doesn't want them to listen to these people because they're just like the serpent. They're crafty. They're wise. They, they, they will deceive the Corinthians if the Corinthians listen to them, and the Corinthians have to stop listening to them. Okay. So Paul is now going to start talking about why they need to be listening to him and accept him as the authority from God, as opposed to these people. The first one we have is in chapter ten, in verse fourteen. Paul reminds them, for we are not extending ourselves beyond our sphere, thus not reaching you, for it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ. Paul was the one that came into Corinth and brought to them the gospel. He's the one who first told them about Jesus. He's the one who uh, brought them to God, caused them to repent of their sin and, and turn to God. It was really all the work of, it was the work of God, but God was using Paul. And Paul is saying, effectively, well, if I'm the one God used to do this work in you, to bring you the gospel, you need to trust me. I'm continuing to do the work of God, as opposed to these other people that came in behind Paul and were, in a sense, enjoying Paul's fruit. Here were all these Gentiles ready to listen to them as Jews, telling them about God. Well, these people were not the ones who brought the gospel, and now they're teaching them false things about God. And Paul would remind them, look, I was the one who came to you with the gospel. I'm the one who first brought you the truth of God. Listen to what I have to tell you. Don't listen to what these guys are, are telling to you. Second, Paul's second approach is he compares his character <coughs> and the way he behaved among the Corinthians to the way these false prophets were behaving among the Corinthians. And very quickly, we have that. Uh, first in verse, verse 9 of chapter 11, And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what was lacking to me, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything I kept myself from being burdensome to you. And so I will keep myself. So here was Paul. He was in Corinth. And he got, he became, got to the point where all his money was used up. And he was in need of provisions. And yet he didn't burden and go to the Corinthians and say, Hey, I've been preaching here. Give me some money so I can you know, have food or clothing and continue to minister to you guys. He didn't. He, instead, he got support from some other church. He, he wasn't a burden to them at all. Okay, listen to what these other guys are doing. By the way, <clears throat> that reminds me of what Jesus said about the good shepherd. Remember, he said the good shepherd cares for the sheep. In the same way, Paul cared about the Corinthians, not about himself. Okay, listen to what these other guys were doing in verse 20. For you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you in the face. That's a description of what these people were doing. They were the ones that were devouring the Corinthians. That is, they were taking their food and putting them it on their plate. They're the ones who were taking from them. They were the ones who were exalting themselves. With these false prophets, it was all about me, me, me. They were always taking for themselves. They were like what uh, Jesus described. Well, it's really, the description about wolves and sheep clothing is appropriate because they were there to really devour the Corinthians. They were seeking after themselves, not after the Corinthians. And so 
Paul is appealing, look at the difference between me and these people. Who should you be listening to? Finally, uh, Paul goes into a list of uh, credentials that he has and really goes from halfway of chapter 11 and through halfway of chapter 12. And Paul is doing it very reluctantly. He doesn't, what he, he's saying will sound like boasting and Paul doesn't want to boast. But he's afraid for the Corinthians that they might be listening to these other people instead of him. And that's why he's saying this. The first one we have is uh, verse 23 of chapter 11. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more in labors, more abundant, in stripes, above measure, in prisons, more frequently in death, often. I am more. I am more a minister of Christ. How do you know? He was willing to suffer more for Christ. He was willing to lose more. It showed that he was faithful to Christ because he was willing to lose more. And there's a whole list of, of how Paul was suffering in his ministry, in his service for Christ. Next we have, in verse 18, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to stumble? And I do not burn with indignation. The other thing, the other credential, a servant of Christ needs, is he needs to care about the people he is ministering to. And Paul cared. He says he was burdened daily with the state of the churches. He cared about how they were doing. If somebody, uh, if somebody was weak, Paul felt weak. If somebody stumbled, Paul felt shame about it. Paul became big. So he cared. His heart was for the people of God. Uh, number, number three, the third uh, area of evidence is in verses three and four of chapter 12. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Paul is clearly saying here, look, I received direct revelation from God. I'm speaking to you, not the things I dreamed out on my own, but the things that God spoke, and I'm delivering it to you guys. And that's what's so important when we're serving God and ministering to people. It's important that they realize, I'm speaking from the word of God. I'm not dreaming things up, and I'm not putting my own interpretation in the way of this world. world. It's from God. I'm a messenger of God. I'm bringing you the word of God. The last sign uh, Paul had is in verse 12. Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. This was something that was really far more critical at the time Paul was because he was sharing truth of the word of God that were not yet recorded in the Bible. He couldn't point people to the Bible because it, didn't, it wasn't there yet. The New Testament wasn't there. And he had to tell them, I'm, I'm telling you the words of God. And God wanted to make sure that people realized that the person who was saying it was really from him. And so what did he do? He did miracles. Supernatural events happened around this person. Healing. Paul was healing people miraculously. Why? So that people realized that when they were listening to Paul, they were listening to the word of God coming from Paul. Uh, in closing, uh, I'll just uh, head to chapter 13 and verse 2. Paul says this, I have told you before and foretell as if I were present the second time and now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest that if I come again, I will not spare. And I, I actually skipped it twice. Three times in this epistle, Paul is, 
is, is imploring them to repent of their sin before he comes. He wants them to get it right so that when he comes there, he can just enjoy them as his children instead of having to discipline them. But here at the end he says, if I have to, I have to. I will discipline you. And that's why, because he, does, because he cares for them. That's, he, his desire is that they be right with God and enjoy fellowship with God. And if what he has to do for this is discipline them, he will. And believe me, it's going to hurt Paul more than it hurts them. But Paul is not thinking of himself. He's thinking of their own good. And because of that, he's willing to also discipline them. So very quickly, uh, some applications. Uh, the first one, which was Paul's desire for the Corinthian, and we have to realize is God's desire for us, is to be with him as children. Is God doesn't want there to be any sin in our life that's keeping us from this perfect relationship with him as father and children. If there's any sin in your life, put it away. And realize if, there's, if somebody is working with you in that, it might be an elder or it could be some other brother, is pointing to some areas in your life. They're not uh, doing it out of spite or anything. It's out of love. Their desire, for, their desire for you to be right with them, to be right with God. Uh, respond. Respond to the work God is doing in your life. Second, uh, this was something that hit me, is Paul is such an example of a servant of God. If you want to be a servant of God, study Paul's heart in this epistle. This is the heart that you should be having toward others. There's a lot of good examples here for us. Finally, if you happen to be, uh, because the serpent is still out there, the false prophets are still out there, there's still people out there that are trying to turn you from the truth of God. Uh, don't listen to them. Ask to see everything out of the word of God and respond to what God is telling you out of his word. That's a true way to have the blessings of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Father's heart and your love for us, which we see so clearly portrayed in this epistle. Father, as, as you love us as children, we want to love you as our Father and put away everything in our life that's displeasing to you and that in any way might, might spoil this uh, perfect fellowship that you have for us with you. We, we pray for people here, if there's areas in their lives that need attention, we pray that you might uh, point the finger to it and might show them the areas that are keeping them from you. And help us, Lord, all as children, love you and repent from these things, that we might enjoy the fullness of the relationship that you want to have with us. In your name.